Welcome to Body Liberation for All. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey. This show is dedicated to bringing you all of the wellness and self-care tips that you need to live your best life. Unlike other sources, this one is focused on BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus people. There are a ton of self-help shows out there, but how many are designed just for us? So if you're ready for all of the self-help and none of the white or het supremacy, you've come to the right place. Today, I have David Malky on the show. This is an absolutely wonderful conversation. David shares some of his personal story and priceless nuggets of wisdom about creativity and working through self-rejection and internalized homophobia. This is definitely something that happens to all kinds of different marginalized identities. If you're surrounded by poison, it makes no sense to think that we're exempt to imbibing some of it. But the curious thing about homophobia is that you can be surrounded by it, inundated in it, before you realize that this is one of your identities. And that makes it even more difficult to work through the process of self-acceptance when you've spent years exposed to this toxic messaging. And then you find out, oh, this is also me. So David's wisdom, it's just priceless. I don't want to spend any more time of talking about the conversation. Let's just get right into it. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box. Tell them that you don't accept. When the world is tripping out, tell them that you love yourself. Hey, hey, smile on them. Live your life just how you like it. It's your party. Negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win. Head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone. So I thank you for tuning in. Let's go. Hi, David. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, Dahlia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to interview you. I've been researching you and I listened to a couple of interviews you did on other shows and your life is just fascinating. It almost seems fictional, (laughs) just uh, your journey. So I already knew that I wanted you to come on and talk about the importance of creativity when it comes to living a full and happy life. But I also would love to hear about how you were raised and the era that you were raised in, because we know that a lot of homophobia is not as blatant these days. It's Mm -hmm. still there and it still causes psychological harm. But the concept of being raised at a time when people still saw it as a mental illness is Mm -hmm. kind of mind blowing for someone born after that. So can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Sure. Well, I was born in 1963 um, in a small town on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. And in 1963 in Canada, it was still legally a criminal offense to be a gay person. And I they define that through specific sexual acts, I think, legally to make that definition. But it didn't matter if you were perceived as being a gay person, you were treated like it was the worst thing 
that a that a boy could be um, at that time, and it was still considered, as you said, a mental illness until 1973, and it wasn't decriminalized until 1969. So for those first six years of my life, I was in a culture that that um, thought it it was an abomination to to be that, even though you don't you don't know that you are that at that age, but the adults would perceive sensitivity or creativity, uh, anything that was considered to be a feminine sort of trait, they would assume that you were going to grow up, that you were, you know, you were some kind of little queerling that would grow up to be a full-fledged gay person. And so even well-meaning people would do everything they could to try to save you from that terrible fate Mm -hmm. by trying to correct you all the time. So it, uh, it was just ongoing all the time, this messages receiving these messages that that it was bad to be sensitive it was bad to be creative it was bad to want to wear colorful clothes it was bad to do anything imaginative it was bad to do anything that to me was joyful and felt true to who i was and at the same time i took in the same message that growing up to be a a, a gay person or you know the FAG word was what was used all the time back mm-hmm. then in a very derogatory way. And I took that in to believe, yeah, that's the worst thing that, that a boy can be, I guess, even though I didn't totally understand what that meant in the sexual sense. But when I became of age to realize that, oh my God, I am this thing that I was taught was the worst thing a boy could be, I'd already been taught to hate it. And so that's the dilemma that so many gay people of my generation and before me had to deal with is how do you overcome those poisonous seeds that were planted before you even knew what you were taking in and and having planted in you. So my journey has been very much informed by that in a nutshell of trying to sort of overcome that, that basic sense of being flawed and bad and wrong. And then on top of that, being mixed with Growing up in a family system where there was a history of kind of lack of attentive, loving fathering. And my mother had elements of breaches in the father-daughter relationship growing up with her father in uh, inappropriate boundaries. It resulted in her feeling very uncomfortable with her. She had four sons and I was the oldest and she had no treatment, no talking, no way of processing in those days, women that had had those kind of experiences. So it came out with her in having this little boy that would want to hug her and and have affection from her. But if I touched her or hugged her, she would stiffen and just pull away. And I, of course, interpreted that as meaning that she found me repulsive on some level or as a rejecting action. It wasn't until many years later as an adult that I started to to realize that I seemed to have a lot of people in my life that I was close to that it had some kind of background in these sort of sexual boundary um, breaches to different degrees and started to really look at my mom and, and, and kind of finally had conversations with her about it and the little jokes that they used to make about my grandfather that she used to make and her sisters would sometimes make about daddy's inappropriate behavior and stuff turned out, you know, she, when we really talked about it and she realized it was safe to talk about it with me, that I wasn't going to judge her for it or, or anything. Then 
I discovered that these breaches had been, you know, uh, enough to cause a lot of damage for her self-esteem. And then as a result, affected her relationship with, with her sons and with me. And so, um, it's the two pronged thing. It was sort of having to overcome the gay, uh, poisoning against being that. And then also just the work that we all have to do of sorting through our family stuff. We all have it to some degree because we're all just fumbling and doing the best we can in life. And even the most loving, best intentioned parents maybe aren't always able to fully meet us where we need them to meet us at every stage of our development. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you phrase it that way, right? Because it is a compound effect. Of course, everyone has, you know, typical humans trying to get through life issues. But then when you add a marginalized identity to that, that's one more layer that you have to fight through to get to happiness and contentment and some kind of some semblance of peace in your life. Yes. And all of the good stuff of feeling deserving of of um of having the life you want to have and doing the things that bring you joy and and uh well and in your field with all the, with the nutrition and um even that on that level of you know feeling that you deserve to be to take care of yourself too in those basic ways it's hard to have the incentive to do that when you feel deep inside that there's something really wrong and bad and you're carrying all that internalized shame you know that all manifested for me as a teenager and running away from home and um, just feeling at the age of 15 that I was on some level alone in life. And I hit a crossroads kind of where I realized I was either going to self-destruct or I would have to start taking responsibility to figure out, you know, how I was going to sort of overcome this to try to tap into the part that the little centurion I called him inside of me had this little voice that was trying to help me all the time by giving me little inklings, little proddings, little guidings. And I've learned since then that the most important thing is to cultivate a relationship with that little inner centurion inside of us because they're there to help us get on to the track that will lead us to a fulfilling, self-loving life, which will make us kinder and more loving with everyone else. You felt that inkling as a teenager, even started, when you were going through all of that stress and having to leave home. I started to be aware when I left home, I spent a lot of time on my own because what I ran away. And then when the police found me, I'd broke into a house to have a warm place to sleep, an empty, abandoned house that nobody was living in. And when the police caught me, they called my mother in the town where she lived. My father had already abandoned our family by that point. But they called my mother and she had taken my running away personally as a kind of an abandonment because when my dad left, she had a complete sort of breakdown. And I was her little um, helper person that was always trying to buoy her up. And and so when I ran away, it just, she took it personally and the little wounded girl in her, she was coming from that place. So she just told the police to hell with him. I'm going to emancipate him. I don't want to be responsible for any trouble he gets in. And if he wants to run away, then let him go. I thought she would cry and beg for me to come back and it would be my ultimate proof of, oh, yes, I am loved after all. No. So it was a big shock. But it was the beginning. You know, I ended up having to spend a lot of time alone and working the kind of crappy little 
minimum wage jobs, you have to work at 15 with no education to, to have some income. And I just started to become aware of this other little voice inside that seemed like a kind of a nice, kind voice. It wasn't the voice that was always telling me how bad I was and pointing out everything that was wrong or flawed. And it ultimately kind of guided me into getting a bicycle by the time I was 17. And this was the first kind of really crazy thing that it seemed to guide me to do that I said yes to. I got a bicycle, a five-speed bicycle with a big basket on the front, and I rode it from uh, Vancouver Island in British Columbia all the way to Santa Barbara, just 90 miles north of Los Angeles, over the whole wow. the summer of 1980. And I was 17, and it was the first time I did anything that physically healthy, and I uh, stopped smoking, I stopped drinking, I stopped doing anything that was unhealthy in that sense. I naturally wanted to eat better because I'd be so starving at the end of the day of riding. And the first few days, I would wake up in the morning in my little tent, and I would just be hardly able to move. My body would be so sore. But it was so good in a way to that I didn't give up, and I kept doing it. Just something about that whole, it was six weeks it took for me to do it. And I was alone that whole time, basically, in my own head. And I started to get the inkling to journal to help me process all these thoughts that I would be having all day. And it was just really the beginning of, of really listening to that voice. And the more we do, the stronger it gets. And by the time I got to Los Angeles, my intention had been that I was going to stay there because I wanted to try to get into acting and television and television had always been my salvation like my my world where i thought it's a you know my my characters on my tv shows as a kid where i could count on them they never shamed me they never put me down they just let me kind of vicariously live through them so i always thought that getting to hollywood would be the answer to everything like dorothy wanting to go to oz and i ended up having the same disillusionment that dorothy did in that sense but when I got to Hollywood at 17 to LA on that trip, my little voice had told me that I needed to go back to my hometown, that I needed to finish at least high school, if not more, if I wanted to have any kind of future, that I needed to face whatever it was I'd sort of run away from, which mainly had to do with my school and the people in that environment and bullies. And that I had this sense that if I didn't go back and face all that, I'd spend the rest of my life being a person who runs away when things are tough and, and not working through things and beginning to realize that life is hard and that the skill of coping with difficulties is part of life. And it doesn't have to be looked at as a sign that something is, is wrong if it takes some effort. And, and as I've learned since then, most things that are worthwhile do take some effort. And learning how to deal with the discomfort of life is one of the greatest skills you can develop. Absolutely, because it is, there's so much that's uncomfortable, even if your own life is going wonderfully great, but we all know people maybe whose lives aren't going so great. So, so that in itself is, is reason to not feel that everything is wonderful. With all the, there's so much suffering going on in the world all the time, even on our best day, someone else is having their worst day. And so if you're conscious of that, how can you just live in a total state of everything's wonderful all the time? You, you still have to cope with things are difficult, things can be sad. And the ultimate 
mystery that no matter what we do, we all have to sort of eventually surrender into this biggest mystery of all of what happens when we when we die and make peace with that. And all these things require effort and, and struggle to maintain uh, enough of a, um, to help us get out of bed in the morning and take on another day in a, in a good way, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. Now, with that being in the 80s, do you mm-hmm. ever wonder what it would have been like trying to get in touch with that voice in the type of atmosphere we're in now? with the constant noise, the constant entertainment, the constant, just the way that we can make noise for ourselves and distract ourselves. Do you think it would have been unlikely that you would have realized that voice was there? That's a good question. I never thought of that, but I think it probably would have because it's so much easier now, you know, back then in pre-internet, pre any of our devices, you know, all you had was TV, basically. We didn't even have VCRs or videotapes to watch. You know, eight-track and cassette tapes just were barely coming in to listen to music, even. So, yeah, um, that's a really good question. And I, I worry about young people today because of that, because it is so easy to be distracted every second of the day. And we're encouraged to never have a moment of discomfort that if you're feeling a little down or something that doesn't feel right, we must distract instead of sitting with the uncomfortableness and learning how to, as we were saying, to sort of deal with it and work your way through it. Um, I don't know how that's going to play out for young people, honestly. Um, I know the pandemic has been unique for a lot of people in that it's the most quiet time they've ever had in their lives. Yes. And you see people's reactions to that have been, we'll just say, widely varied. <laughs> <laughs> Very widely varied, yeah. But in, in the bigger picture, I felt like it's a it's a good thing in that sense. If it doesn't cause someone to swamp completely and overwhelm them too much in, in that isolation. But I always am an advocate for learning how to be comfortable spending time alone with yourself. Because ultimately, we're the only person that's going to be with us for every moment of our life, who really knows every single moment of what we've been through, and will be there with us when we take our last breath. And there's no one else in our lives, really, that we can say that about. So it seems important It's important to have a good relationship with, with your precious self. Well, and that can make that so much more scary for people who have a lot of internalized Mm self-hatred the concept that it's just you and that that relationship is important but if you're always trying to get away from yourself because you don't love yourself or you can't even stand yourself it's a very stressful uh tense feeling just knowing that you aren't there yet with the self-love how did you even get to the point that you realized that what you were feeling was poison that had been fed you and that it wasn't real and it wasn't true. Well, just by starting to become more conscious of seeing patterns of behavior, of having something good happen, a great opportunity, and then doing things that would kind of sabotage it in a way. And uh, I, other people sort of pointed that out to me initially. I had an extraordinary mentor that came into my life when I went back to my little town at 17 and wanted to drop back into high school. There was a teacher named Marie Rackham who had been a teacher I'd had in elementary school, and she'd been my favorite teacher in the world. 
She was a powerful woman that didn't allow any shaming or, you know, within her classroom, everybody felt safe because she was so tough and, and strong that nobody would dare challenge her. So it let all the bullies off the hook even. So she had created this space in my life where it had felt safe and, and she did drama and she had a choir and all the things I loved in English. And she would just say interesting little life lessons all the time that she was trying to stuff into us to counteract this little backwoods in a way town that we were growing up in it was very isolated kind of town that was all based around logging and fishing and um, mining so she ended up when i came back she had transferred up to the high school level just by happenstance to make a change in her own life and become a, a counselor and a english teacher and putting on high school musicals at the high school level so when i walked in there to re-register, initially, they weren't going to let me drop back into school because they felt that I had had too many sort of worldly experiences and said I, I might be a corrupting influence oh on, on the other kids. Wait, and they I, said that in a public school? In a public school, yeah, because oh, at 17, wow. they didn't have to let me back in. Legally, they didn't have to. And also trying to work out two years I'd been out. So at what point am I, am I going to start again at the point where I left out and be with these these much younger kids and and I had gotten into some trouble with you know with legal things and uh, done self-destructive bad things that I mean that hurt myself that people that had come back to the town and people knew about a lot of the things that had happened to me but Marie went to the principal and she said that she was going to vouch for me because she remembered me in elementary school and she said he has he has an intelligence and a creativity, and he's worth having another chance. Like, if we don't let him in, what's going to happen? He's at a crucial crossroads. And she had such a stellar reputation that they were willing to let me in if she would be my kind of watch person and shepherd. And that's what she did. And, and so we ended up becoming um, extremely good friends and and uh, she was like my mentor. And then when I graduated, we kept up our connection with each other and we became friends as sort of equal adults. And when I did end up living in Hollywood, she would come and spend her summer breaks there because her husband had died and she had no children. And she would come to L.A. and come with me to sets and was just this unconditional supportive person. And so I say all that to, to in answer to the question that she was the one who I trusted so much and believed that she did care about me through her actions. And she was the one that gently started really pointing out to me how I was sabotaging myself a lot of the time, especially when I got to Los Angeles and would go on auditions or, or even get a job and have to confront this camera with its big eyeball that on some unconscious level, I was feeling it was judging me and seeing what I felt was bad and wrong within me because I hadn't really begun to, to really heal a lot of that internalized stuff at that point. I'd stopped acting out in self-destructive ways through the support of, of people like Marie, but I hadn't done that work. And we, we still always have to do that work or it catches up with you at some point. So she, she just gently helped me become aware of that and also made me aware that I had to take responsibility for my own sort of healing journey that, you know, not meaning that I had to do it alone, but that I had to kind of guide my own healing journey and seek out 
put some effort into it. I couldn't expect anyone to just come and fix me, kind of. And so that opened up a whole door for me in my 20s in Los Angeles and everything that I had access to in Los Angeles as far as conventional therapeutic situations or even going to like NA or AA meetings just because I loved hearing how honest and open everybody was talking about shame. And they didn't seem to mind that I wasn't actually presenting as an alcoholic. They were welcoming. And I didn't know where else to go where you could get that level of honesty that people that have been working those 12-step programs for a long time, they get to know themselves pretty, pretty well. And Overeaters Anonymous or any of those 12-step programs I would seek out. And, uh, and different cultural groups, um, you know, the town I grew up in had been very, there were um, uh, First Nations people there who had, whose land it had been originally that were now segregated onto these poverty-stricken reservations and it had so much shame and they had been treated so badly and, and, and the culture had kind of taught the predominant culture to continue that shame. And the legacy of that was alcoholism and drug addiction and we would see the ravages of that without the compassion for understanding what a complicit part our ancestors had all played in creating that horror show for them. But in Los Angeles, it was really helpful for me just to seek out getting to have friends that were from different cultural backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds, just even on that level to start to learn about, because otherwise they all, everybody seems like other. But when you have a friendship, then you start to find where you where you're where you're the same underneath in the ways that really matter as human beings. Yeah. That's interesting. I've never heard that frame that way that even having a diverse group of friends can be healing in that it helps oh. you understand your own humanity more and where you have all this common ground with other people. Absolutely. And also it it helped to find a tribe of other gay people finally too that were out and um i had an extraordinary experience when i was 21 in la in 1984 i did this play called blue is for boys and it was the first time in actors equity where they had a play that was about a bunch of openly gay teenagers and it was kind of a big deal in 1984 they'd done a production of it in new york and then this was the la company and there were a number of us young actors in it playing. We were supposed to be all living in a dormitory at New York University for gay guys. And um, as it turned out, all of the actors that ended up doing this play were gay in real life. Surprise, surprise. The straight actors didn't want anything to do with it. Oh, um, interesting. But the, the wonderful thing about that was it was the first time to be in a creative situation with a bunch of other gay young guys, most of whom had come like me from their little hometowns and come to the big city and and were having their first real experience of being with a bunch of other gay guys from a similar age background and all of that, just to compare notes. It was quite exciting. But the challenging part of that was just as that tribe was being discovered, the AIDS crisis hit. The first original wave of that hit when it wasn't even called AIDS yet, when it was still the gay cancer. And there was all of this discrimination around people who had it and even medical people that didn't want to touch them and mortuaries that wouldn't even accept the bodies. And it was, it was just like a, a horror show that came out of nowhere. And so 
any progress, at least speaking for myself, that I had made felt like the sparks of that self-loathing were still there and somebody came and dumped a giant barrel of gasoline on it. It was sort of like, yep, yep, they were right. You see, we're all getting sick of this horrible disease and dying and nobody seems to care. The Reagan, President Reagan wouldn't even acknowledge it was happening publicly. And within that world of that, like in Hollywood, in the gay community, it was like, uh, um, it was just devastating and terrifying. And, and, and it also plunged me into, um, the reality of death in seeing these young men my own age that were just suddenly ravaging away and, and dying. And this was um, just your late teens or this was your early twenties? This was my early twenties then, 21, 22, 23. Wow. You know, but again, talking about the inkling, my inkling, my fear of what was happening sort of saved me in a way at the time because it made me terrified to have any kind of intimate encounters with anybody during that period of time where they didn't really know how it was transferred. And so I may have ended up becoming infected if my fear hadn't have kind of protected me for a while from that. And also having to face mortality and, and, uh, realizing that death is a very real thing that is going to happen to all of us. And it strengthened that little warrior inside because when people would try to say that this was what gay people deserved, that little voice inside would be like, nobody deserves this level. What have, what have these people done that's so horrible that they deserve to die this way? They've done nothing. They're good people. They're creative people trying to go out in the world and do something with their lives. And I just knew that that wasn't true. So it strengthened that sense of questioning everything that we're told about what's right or wrong or, you know, that we, as a child, we take all that in and just accept it. And then we have to go through a phase as a young adult, hopefully, where we question everything for ourselves authentically to make sure that it is true for us. And so that, that was the gift of all that is it strengthened a lot of that. And I think there's a a huge freedom in letting go of your fear of death because so many people make decisions based on trying to avoid it and it's inevitable. Yeah, I think you can't really live until you make peace with the fact that you're going to die. Because for one thing, if you're in denial about death, you can put things off. You can sort of put off doing what you really want to do. You can put off reconciling with somebody that you know you hurt at some point instead of going and doing what you need to do to make it right or at least to acknowledge that you know you hurt them and you're sorry but when you really know that everything is is finite and comes to an end you don't want to put things off and and even just saying goodbye to a friend you know that you meet for dinner or something you you conscious that you who knows what can happen you might never see them again so if you love them if you care about them let people know that as you go so that if something bad does happen, you won't have the regret of wishing that you had said this or done that or let them know what they meant to you. Yeah. And it, it, it really helps keep your priorities straight of how you want to use your time. Like, do you want to just fritter it away or do you want to use it in a way that's enriching and juicy somehow to your authentic development? Yeah, the idea of living through the beginning of the AIDS crisis, it does sound so like otherworldly, like it must have seemed so surreal to suddenly, because, you know, young people usually aren't very aware of their own mortality to go through an era where like all of your friends are dying and they're these 
young people full of life who hadn't even thought about death because it was supposed to be 80 years away. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it felt like. It, it just, um, it was, it was a huge gift in accelerating what normally would happen maybe when you're in your forties, fifties, when you start to really question and you start to have some of your friends start to die or maybe a parent has died or something by the time you get that age, you probably had to confront some version of death. And it was a gift in retrospect because it, it just sensitized me to a much deeper way of looking at things at that young age, which I so appreciate now. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry that it took so much sort of horror and, and um, sadness and suffering at the time, but I can't change that. But I can focus on the gifts that came out of it. And I feel that's part of the legacy of the friends, the people that, that I lost then that never had a chance to come to fruition with their talents or their full selves. I feel that um, I'm always aware of them and, and have a deep appreciation for for the opportunities that we all have every day to have another experience of being alive. So that's been very enriching and that contributed a lot to tapping into the joyful side of things and really strengthen that little centurion's voice again going through all of that. Because the centurion likes what's truthful and real because it knows that you need to connect with that to really connect with anybody else ultimately too. You know, you have to be real. How do you drop into that space to get connected to what you know is true and real and to hear that inner voice? Is that also what drives your creativity or is that a little different? It's they're, they're connected. I mean, it's taken a long time to bring them completely connected, but I see them as, I see our creativity really as just a, an opportunity to practice the art of being in touch with ourselves and listening because that's all being creative is, right? When you, you get an idea and you listen to it and you think, that's a good enough idea that I'm going to make the effort to try to write that down or create that podcast or write that play or, you know, it's that moment of taking action to believe that it is a valid enough idea that it deserves some energy put into it and you make the effort to do it. You may only get the impulse just for the idea and to write it down, say, initially, and you don't know how it's going to unfold beyond that. But I've learned that if you just, you don't have to know 20 steps down the road, just listen to one at a time. And, and usually it's clear, you can hear it, but it does require carving out a little bit of what I call wandering and wondering time, kind of quiet time where you're not too distracted. And, and we all have to learn what that is for each of us. It's different for everybody. For someone, it might be running and jogging or being super physical, and someone else has to be absolutely still and meditating in a lotus position, or you know, someone else likes to just go for a walk. But I do know that, like right now, my husband and I are living in a yurt um, on a, it's a 13-acre woodlot, and we're surrounded by forest. And we've been living here for almost 10 years now in this space that we initially thought we were just going to be in for a much shorter period of time. But we love it so much. He's a writer, and we both are living a kind of creative life. And we find that there's something about the nature sounds that are very conducive to connecting us with that voice. The city sounds are exciting and fun. I mean, I love going to New York. I loved LA. But city sounds are distracting, and they want attention. They're like 
nattery nattery, you know, they need, they're needy for attention all the time, demanding, look at me, look at this, look at this, look at that, hear that. But nature is the opposite. Nature is like a, a friend that is a really good listener that just quietly listens and lets you finish your thoughts and see them all the way through. And we love how those sounds permeate the fabric of the yurt walls. And oh, it's like, it's a real yurt. So it's fabric. Yeah. Can you explain, did you guys make it or no. you pick the land first? No. Well, what happened was when my friend, I was telling you about my teacher, Marie, she uh, ended up getting terminal breast cancer. And when she died, she had a cat, this beloved cat that had been with her through all her chemo and radiation and all her treatments. And her big concern about dying was what would happen to her cat. So I had promised her that I would give the cat the best possible life I could. And at the time, the cat was probably like 14 or 15. So I thought, well, she probably won't live too long. But anyway, when my husband and I, or not yet husband at the time, but when we had the two of us and the cat, we were looking for a place for us to set up our first home together. And somebody told us about this yurt. I didn't, I wasn't that aware of yurts. My husband had lived in a yurt at one point, so he was familiar with them. But when we came and saw the yurt, it had a little cat door in the door. And so I took that as the sign that this was the perfect home for Callie, the cat. And plus, there were no dogs or predators on the 13 acres, so she'd be safe, And uh, except for raccoons. She was always obsessed with raccoons, so I thought that we all need a little something in our lives to give it some excitement so she could just be scared of raccoons all the time or whatever. But uh, I thought she'd maybe live for two years or so, but she ended up living till she was almost 22, just oh, short of wow. 22 years old, because it was the ideal paradise for a cat here and then she that was about three years or so ago with it she died and we just we just are so accustomed and it's, it's also the roundness like for those that don't know a yurt is round and it has a big dome in the crown in the ceiling of so all the natural light comes in and lots of windows around the periphery and there's something about the roundness of it that is very nurturing and um it feels like a womb and so when my partner at the time, now husband, we wanted our first living space together to be one that we were very consciously wanting to create a a vessel to hold us in our intentions to to really help each other work through our different issues that we saw being in partnership as being very much about kind of aligning with someone else with the bigger intention of helping each other become most fully who they have the potential or would like to help, you know, help them become to be. And so this felt energetically like a space that was very conducive to that. And for one thing, for developing communication skills, because it's only a 20 foot yurt. So, oh, wow. See, that's a commitment. When I see people on these tiny house shows, yes. I think, man, this must be like the healthiest couple ever. Or they're not going to make it. Like, those are the exactly. options. <laughs> that's, that's what it does for you. And we thought we both had spent many years living, like, just alone without partners, living these very, and quite at peace with that. So we thought, well, we'll find out if we're even compatible to be in partnership, or maybe we're meant to live kind of like monks or something, or who knows. 
but yeah, it did. It sharpens those communication skills because you, you have to, you can't keep up any fake pretense for too long in this small of a space. And something about the roundness of it seems to amplify anything as well, as opposed to a square cornered regular house. Somehow, somehow you think like things can kind of hide in those sharp corners. I don't know, energetically. Mm. It's hard to explain. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. If you are tired of digging through shit to find tools that you can use, you need to check out the Body Liberation Community. This community is centered on BIPOC and LGBTQIA plus folks. It's centered on health and happiness, wellness tools, specifically for these marginalized identities. As your queer Black registered dietitian, all of the content that I create is with these identities in mind. No more parsing through generic, het, cis-centered nonsense that may or may not apply to your lived experience. This wellness community is all about you. The link is in the show notes. Check it out and see how much you love it with the one-week risk-free trial. There's literally nothing for you to lose. Were you this in tune when you first met? Were you already in your 30s or 40s and in a more mature, grounded place? Yeah, I, I was like 45 when I met Tom. And um, and he's 13 years younger than me, but he was uh, very mature for his age because of he's a writer and a poet. And he'd lived for many years in India in a very remote village there. And he'd lived for a time in Mexico. Um, so he had spent a lot of time in solitary, you know, pursuit of his writing and that artistic lifestyle. And just, uh, he's kind of an old soul anyway. So we both were at a place where there was no real reason to be in a relationship unless it was going to include um, a mutual agreement that a relationship should be about helping each other grow as opposed to what society often sells relationships as the happily you meet your happily ever after perfect person then everything's wonderful and then what happens when you you know in real life it isn't really wonderful because very quickly the honeymoon phase ends and your real very your real issues very quickly <laughs> and your real issues start bubbling up and yet we haven't been taught that it's just supposed to be happily ever after so people think when those issues come up oh no i this isn't my perfect partner. I picked the wrong one. Oh my God, better get a divorce and find another one. It's It's been a disservice to us that we've been taught. It's again, that idea that we don't have to put effort into things and that even the most loving relationship with the person you're most compatible with still requires constant care and vigilance to protect it and maintain it. And, and you have to work at it. And it's joyful. We call it joyful grunt work, but it's work. How do you have disagreements in like a conscious way or productive way when you're in such a small space? Well, that's a good, very good question. Um, well, just as a like an actual example might be my tendency because of my background, if I'm upset or feeling misunderstood, is I just I just want to run away. I always default to that run away. And I literally would just sometimes run off into the woods outside the yurt in my sock feet in the winter time, you know, in the rain, just 
run out there overwhelmed with these feelings and it would be like regressing back to being 12 or 13 or something and just just wanting to run away and disappear and what would happen was i would freeze and then i would have to sheepishly come back in and there was nowhere to hide so i would come in and then you know give the silent treatment that was my second favorite thing was to just pull in then and just um not say what i was feeling and give that cold shoulder kind of thing that I'd kind of learned from my mom in a way. But what would, what happened was we would very quickly kind of start talking about it as difficult in that moment of how uncomfortable. You, the last thing you want to do is talk about it when you're overwhelmed with those feelings, those regressive feelings. But we would talk about it, and I would quickly start to feel better. And over time, it builds up a trust to the point where if there's something, a disagreement or something happens where I get that impulse of I want to run away, I'm not being understood, or I'm not getting my way or whatever, I don't even have to run out anymore because I know I'd rather just get right to talking about it and save that time. Um, so I'll just take the risk of saying this is what I'm really feeling right now. And he will tenderly hold a space for that and has over and over. And I try to do the same for him. And so it, it, it just, it's just that it's simple, really, but it takes effort in that moment to sit down and breathe and just be with each other and speak our truths and not be reactive and not try to be who's right and who's wrong, but just look at the bigger picture of what's really bothering you right now. And I care about you and I see that something's bothering you and I'll just listen and not interrupt while they're, you know, while the other's trying to share that. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that sounds very advanced. Well, it's, I mean, it sounds wonderful saying it, but it's still always an effort to practice it. I always say that when people comment to us about how we seem when they just observe us and they don't see the actual work of those moments. That's why I love podcasts like this or any opportunity or the creative work that I do is all about trying to talk and show truth of the nitty-gritty of it in very practical ways because we can all learn those they're just skills that we haven't been taught i love when it's framed that way yes that these are skills we haven't been taught that really was one of the reasons why i kept feeling called to this project is that so much of the information that people share when it comes to life skills are meant for people who aren't going to go through the extra hurdles of being a gay person, being a person of color, being maybe a first generation American or Canadian, like all the information is for people who are having trials and tribulations like regular people, mm -hmm. but there's nothing added to that, right? Like exactly. it's not much was, for the rest of us. That's what I totally found back in the late seventies and all through the eighties, even in Los Angeles, there wasn't there wasn't a lot that was specifically geared to to us and our experience. And we have a distrust, or I had a distrust of predominant culture's beliefs about things. Because the more I really looked at them, the more I felt I didn't relate to them. They didn't apply to me. So even if I went to try to get support through that structure, I didn't trust it. And, and there has to be a, a modicum of trust when it comes to starting to work on your you know, your inner shame issues and those, that stuff requires a safe space. Absolutely. So, 
That makes so much sense. That is true. Well, when it comes to your creative project, so he's there writing. And what are you working on in that same space? Well, I work on a number of things. We have a, I have a, my friend Marie that I mentioned again, we created a um, business together before she died called Cozy Grammar. That was a, it's an English grammar curriculum that's online. And so after she died, she was the on-camera person for teaching on camera. And uh, we never completed the entire arc of the series that we had intended to do before she couldn't do it anymore and died. And I thought, well, I guess the series is just always going to be limited to how far we got. But when I met Tom, who's also a teacher, as well as a poet and a writer, I realized that we could maybe continue it if he was willing to want to do that. And he was. So I work every day on things to do with our cozy grammar series, whether it's writing in a script for an episode that has to be done or streaming online now. And so there's always a lot of customer relation things to deal with and, you know, the back end behind of how it all works and just uh, planning how it's going to unfold. And now with the COVID situation, it's been, you know, we've been getting a lot, it's been getting a lot busier because so many people are stuck at home now and have to take on teaching their kids. And so grammar is one of those things that a lot of people don't feel very comfortable teaching because they may not have really learned it themselves because in the 70s and 80s and 90s, it was kind of phased out in a lot of districts where they felt that the teaching of formal grammar was stultifying to creativity somehow. It's actually the opposite. It's just a tool. It's a technique. The same way that learning how to play scales or knowing about notes in music is the technique of music. Knowing how to have a language and vocabulary for working with language in the form of grammar, it just it frees you creatively eventually. But anyway, um, so I work on that. And then we're also, we've been preparing to stream a show, a musical that we wrote together that's based on, called The Driftwood Bridge. And it's based on a lot of these things we've been talking about from my own experience and Tom's own experience of how the journeys that we went on to eventually be ready to meet each other and be conscious enough to have a mutually conscious relationship based on wanting to grow and live juicy, creative, wonderful lives together. And we wanted to try to share that. I wanted to tell the story of my friend Marie and how what a big role she had played in my life. and also how she had overcome a lot of shame in her life. And that's what made her such an extraordinary teacher because she was very sensitive to seeing the wounds of it in in children and doing everything she could to try to um, alleviate some of that damage and to give them the practical tools to learn how to continue that journey on their own. I wanted to pay tribute to her. And the premise of the show was, at the beginning of the show, there's all this driftwood all over on this sort of existential beach and I'm tripping and stumbling over all this driftwood all over the place. And then I start to sort of turn over these pieces of driftwood, and they have words written on them that symbolize different experiences that I'd had that felt negative, that I thought I was a victim of those experiences, like being gay or um, you know, growing up in a small town or whatever it might have been, my family issues. And then I try to show how I learned to take all of those separate elements that I thought were negative, and by reimagining them into trying to see what was the gift of it, because everything has a gift in it. Even the worst thing that can happen to us 
If nothing else, the gift is that you have compassion for others who are having a terrible thing happen to them. And so that's a gift if you look at it that way. And so as the show goes on, all these separate pieces, as they get reimagined from stumbling blocks into bridging materials, start to form an actual bridge. So by the end of the show, there's this bridge built out of driftwood. And Tom and I then are able to meet on this bridge and commit to to our life together. Um, it was just a wonderful vehicle to talk about a lot of these these healing journey things. I've learned over the years that by sharing as honestly as I can about my own experience, it's so strange how the more specific it is of my experience, the more universal it is for others. That's what I kept being told all the time and encouraged. And I found it much more satisfying than trying to play other characters and contriving, looking for characters to try to convey a certain thing. I find it more satisfying to just go straight to my own lived experience and try to share it. As I get older, I feel more of a sense of the limits of time. And um, I want to get right to the meat of what I want to share, I guess. Uh, and and the, the excitement of having discovered that amalgamation of your creative creativity and your growth path, whether you want to make a living as a creative, we're all creative beings every minute of the day. Our life itself is, is just the result of the choices, the creative choices we make every moment of the day and the actions we do or don't take. But just bringing that spirit of trying to connect with our creative impulse, because I feel it's the impulse that's connected to that little inner centurion I was talking about, and it's, it's connected to our inklings. And so, whether it's the creativity of how you approach cooking a meal or bathing your child or, or how you dust your house, or it can be anything can have that creative way of looking at things applied to it. And then it becomes an extension of your growth and kind of feeling in flow with that authentic part of yourself that you know you're in touch with when you feel a little lighter, when you feel a little, we wake up in the morning and you're kind of excited about something that you have planned that day, even if it's just a tiny little thing. And there's 20 other things that you're sort of dreading having to deal with. But if you can hold on, it's amazing how it strengthens your attention, just gets trained to just focus more and more gradually on those positives so that you don't ignore the negatives, but you just kind of like, yeah, I'll take care of those because then I get to get on to the good stuff faster. And it naturally makes you want to um, take care of the things, the practical things like our how, how we eat, how we exercise, how we take care of ourselves, the environment we live in. We naturally start to want to tend to those things because we feel better when we do. And when we feel better, we can be more creative and more productive. And there's such joy in that framing. There's such joy in that. One of the biggest barriers I think people have to expressing their creativity is fear of criticism, fear of fully showing up and then maybe experiencing rejection. Even Mm -hmm. if it's from strangers, it can feel very personal, even though it can't be personal because they don't know us, right? How do you reconcile that when you're starting out? with trying to express your creativity? Well, it was a long, that was a long pathway. Um, you know, for, for a long time, I didn't express my creativity at all because I was so invested in what others would think and too overly sensitive to any slightest sign of, a, of any kind of rejection or disapproval. Initially, it was doing creative things that were 
part of bigger projects that other people were involved in where I wasn't myself, where I was playing a character, like doing a regular musical or a regular play that someone else wrote. And I could kind of hide behind that. And then I didn't feel like I was being directly judged. Although, if I got a bad review, I can quote verbatim the worst bad reviews I got, like back in my 20s. I can't quote any of the good reviews. I always. Oh, it still sticks. It stick. It stuck so much then. And it still, it still does like that. Once those pathways, once that tendency has been laid, it's kind of always there. But the difference is you learn to make alternate pathways and you learn to realize you can choose in the moment whether to go down the negative one or bypass it and choose to go down the positive one. It just, it takes a kind of effort in that moment to make that choice. And sometimes you'll still go down the negative one at first until you realize, oh, this is so boring. I, you know, and then you, you eventually just get tired of it. But I, I never want to try to seem as if the potential to still have those bouts of feeling bad can always be there, but they just don't. It's developing a skill set that helps you to um, not be hobbled by them when they happen and that you realize you do have a choice. But, but it was years of of hiding behind other people's characters and other people's creativity in a way, or not hiding, but just feeling safe, I should say, put it that way, to not shame people that are in that place still. And gradually developing a, a little more confidence to kind of step out and do, throw a little something of my own into it and, ooh, that got a good response. And then doing the same thing that got you the good response the night before, and then it totally doesn't the next night. And after a while, you start to realize that well, I did the exact same thing. So maybe it isn't really about me at all. Like it's what people are bringing to it and their own stuff. Like that's the other gift of working on yourself is that eventually you stop being so inward focused and self-focused and you start to look out and start to see that others who are in their little self-focused bubbles really don't think about you as much as we think that they do. And they don't really care as much as we think that they do. And also going through the whole AIDS thing, I think that helped a lot too, to not be as invested in what people think when you do see the reality of the temporariness of life. And and also as a result of that, hearing a lot of people when they were in that situation in hospice where they were going to die, and the regrets that they had, some of the older people that were dying in those hospices as well, about all the things that the biggest regrets they had weren't about anything that they did. It was always what seemed to be more what they hadn't done, that they'd let themselves down by not following that great idea that they'd had, or they'd let what other people thought, like their, what their parents thought, or what somebody else thought stop them from expressing something they wanted to express. And that made a real impression on me because I could see the pain in their eyes and in their manner and in their emotion as they tried to discharge that so that they could relax into death. And the people that seem to have lived more authentically seem to have a more peaceful time when it came to letting go. And that, that really made an impression on me. So that helped. And then I did this interesting thing where um, I, I had this inkling one day in Los Angeles, I was walking past a nursing home. I would walk past it to go to the store all the time. And I would see the windows were on street level. And I could see the people that were in that nursing home in their beds. And they were in there. And one day I got this thought that I thought, gee, I wonder if they would ever like to have somebody come in and just sing some 
songs like from their era, like old Broadway songs or, or whatever. Just this weird thought came into my head. And I was like, ew, like, I don't want to go in there. No way. But it kept bugging me. And finally, I just had learned by then to try to listen to those. So I went in and I just went in and asked, you know, do you have such a thing? Does, do you ever, do people ever do that? Like just volunteer to come in? And they were like, yes, please. We'd love it. And they connected me with the activities director. And so she said, that would be so great if you could come in and sing songs of their era and would mean a lot. So I went home and I put together this show and I got all these little costumes to try to make it colorful and visual for them. And then I thought, ooh, and I'll get flowers so that I can hand out flowers and it'll give me an excuse to kind of give them that quick little touch as I pass the flower because the lady had been telling me that a lot of them have no visitors and no touch and and it turned out to be one of the best things I could have ever done performing-wise because there was no motivation for doing it. I didn't care what they thought because they were they had dementia. They were it, it sort of lifted that worry of how of of how I'd be judged. And I was able to just focus on the idea of wanting to give them something. And that was what the pleasure of it was. It was so satisfying to see their reactions and and if they did have a, a relative who came to visit, because sometimes when they'd have a, a, a show like that, they would invite relatives to come and turn it into kind of a little event. And to see mom and dad suddenly come out of their, their d- dementia cloud and perk up and start to sing the lyrics of a song that they had loved when they were young, they would momentarily be recognizable as the mom and dad that people had known. It, it, people would get so emotional and were so appreciative. And it just, it opened up, it just did something for me that um, it carried over into my other paid work or professional work, where somehow I noticed that I was just feeling less and less taking it personally, like how I was, if I didn't get a job, or if a director was correcting me, or I'd just be like, okay, that's how the director's vision is. And it just slowly kind of slipped away, is, Mm. is how I'd put it, over time through again following those inklings and then that eventually led to getting the courage to having these little ideas for original material that i felt i wanted to do but just being terrified at the thought of that initially and doing it originally doing little original things in the nursing homes because it felt really i was comfortable to do that there and at least the nurses or the doctors or the there were people the attendants there were regular minded people so i could kind of gauge and I'd see, oh, they kind of like that. Okay, So it gave me confidence to eventually start doing it for more regular audiences. And then slowly, I just would put in more and more and more of my original stuff until one day I realized, oh, my God, the whole, this whole show is, is original material. And um, it was just so satisfying. And it would provoke wonderful conversations with people afterwards that were touched or, or could relate or wanted to express to me what it brought up in them. And I, it felt like an extension of my personal life, of my friendships and the trying to cultivate, you know, people that like to talk about this stuff. And it, and it was like, wow, I don't have to have a division between my professional life. And this is like amazing. I never would have imagined this could happen. And then I also found there was a lovely balance in still doing other people's work sometimes and the collaborative nature of being with a bunch of people doing a show as opposed to my, they were solitary shows I was doing of my own material um, until I met with, with Tom was the first time that we wrote something together and then kind of wrote our parts separately and then kind of interwoven them 
into this full show, the, the Driftwood Bridge, that um, that we've been developing and performing the last couple of years. And now with COVID, our bookings all, of course, have been canceled, sadly, in that sense. But instead of being down about it, we decided that we could make it available in a streaming form because we filmed a version of it we produced last November in a full production in a theater. So it's actually this coming Saturday, the 22nd of August, that we're launching that. We're just making it available for people to watch it if they are interested in seeing it. Um, oh, wonderful. And where do people find that? At driftwoodbridge.com. And if they go there now, well, when I don't know when this will air, but it might already be um, on there by the time this airs. Uh, but it'll be Saturday, August 22nd, that it'll actually be streaming. But if you go there before then, there's lots of information about the show and um, background and press stuff about it and all of that sort of thing. Well, I'll put all that in the show notes. I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. You're so fascinating to talk to. And the concept of that project is beautiful. So I definitely want to see it. I know a lot of people will. Well, thank you. There's some things I'm really proud of in it. There's one particular aspect of it that people have really resonated with to do with when my father, who'd abandoned us when I was a kid, he developed a brain tumor when he was 61, a very aggressive brain tumor, and was given a very short amount of time to live. And I had to make the choice as an adult, you know, in my like 34, I guess I was, whether I was going to get involved with helping to care for him or not. Mm. And the little boy, there was a part of me that wanted to be like, well, too bad. You know, you walked out on us, so we'll walk out on you. And there's a whole depiction of that struggle and journey of trying to decide and kind of being inkling guided as to what would be the healthiest way ultimately to deal with it for me and for him. And an amazing healing that came out of choosing to try to give him in his most vulnerable time of life where he was reduced to being like an infant again because of all these seizures he was having. He was paralyzed, and he literally was in a diaper in a hospital bed and uh, couldn't even talk because of his vocal cords. He had trouble talking like a child, like a baby, learning to talk, and choosing to give him as if I was the father and he was the child and giving him that hands-on loving care that he hadn't been able to give healed something in him and me in a very profound way that's if there's any other message I like to try to put out there, it's it's at least presenting the idea of that. If others find themselves in that situation, there are times when somebody maybe has been was so abusive that it would be unhealthy for you to engage with them. But I think that that inkling, that voice inside can help tell you it knows. But just that idea of forgiveness and the more I'd learned about him and his father and his father before that and the systemic lack of nurturing in the family the more the anger and the hurt and the taking it personally just lifted and it, i realized it was nothing personal he he had he was he had not been taught how to give that kind of nurturing he was basically a wounded little boy in a grown man's body and then i just felt this compassion for that suffering part of him because i had sort of shifted into becoming my own father my own parent taken responsibility for tending to that i i think that was part of that the gift of that but Anyway, the depiction of that, there's a song that goes with that that I, I'm most particularly proud of that in the show. So I, I appreciate an opportunity to tell people about it. And anyone who's interested in this, if this conversation is interesting to people, then there'll be elements in this piece that they probably would find interesting. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'll definitely put all those in the show notes. I really appreciate you coming on. This is just so full of insight for any creative person, anyone who knows that they're a creative person. And then for anyone who is just now realizing that creativity is literally just part of the human experience. And we all are that. We all are that. And there's one one last little quick thing I'd love to share too with your audience is to do with this idea of creativity and COVID when we were suddenly having all of our performing venues taken away from us and not able to do any live performing. We decided, Tom and I, that we still had power to be creative. So we decided to use what we had within the yurt and we started something called Broadway in the Yurt where we create these kind of goofy, well, some of them are serious, but most of them are kind of fun and goofy, either takeoffs on famous Broadway songs or strange interpretations of them. And uh, we ended up having the New York Times found out about it and featured one of our videos in the New York Times, which was just unbelievable <laughs> that, that it got that kind of exposure. But it was such a lesson in in the power of what we create that here, stuck in our little yurt on the West Coast, we could make these videos, put them out there, and have them somehow make them way, their way within two months to New York and someone in the New York Times, and, and then them posting it on their online version, and so that there were millions of people that potentially could see it. And it was such a lesson in um, the power of our creativity. And not being invested, that was never the intention of it. It was just to be creative and keep that energy flowing and put something out there. So anyway, That's we're amazing. we're proud of those. And, and the themes in them are kind of to do with issues that were coming up sometimes for us being in lockdown together. And we would try to find a humorous, creative way of addressing some of those. Like there's one to do with eating my, me turning to my comfort foods, junk food under stress and, and, and like that. And by the time we would finish the videos, we'd be laughing about how silly we'd been or whatever. So there's that element to them too that's helpful. Anybody that's interested in those, they just have to type Broadway in the yurt into YouTube and they can see them. So not no one else <laughs> um, interfering with those key terms. Those are all you guys. Yeah, that no one else has sort of put Broadway in a yurt, I guess. It <laughs> comes up right, right at the top if you type that. I loved that conversation. If you were anywhere near as blown away by all of David's wisdom and creative energy as I was, make sure you check out the show notes and connect to him and check out this project that they're making available during COVID as a stream. I love the way that David honored his childless friend and mentor and really acknowledges what a difference an adult can make in the life of a young person, whether or not they have children themselves. A lot of times we overlook the contributions that childless people make to the lives of the young people around them. And I think it's so beautiful when you see that type of intergenerational friendship being a positive catalyst for growth in the young person's life and for it to still be having this ripple effect even after her death is just absolutely beautiful to me. Be sure to join me for the next episode. It won't be next week, but the week after that. So initially, all I really committed to was once a month with some bonus episodes. But I have really been feeling 
that sense of flow that David mentioned in the interview, that feeling of lightness as I go into having these conversations. I'm just feeling more and more called to share the wisdom of my guests. I have a spreadsheet that I use to collect guest information. And I added a field where I asked for the guest to tell me based on what they feel like sharing with the audience, what they think they might want the episode to be called. And people have been coming up with the most amazing healing topics Fascinating topics, topics that celebrate our identities, topics that I know so many people need to hear. These are things I needed to hear years ago. A lot of this I still need to hear. I just am so into this podcast and this project right now that I'm shifting a lot of things to be able to focus more attention on it. So I say all that to say that rather than just doing a monthly episode with the occasional bonus, it's more likely that this is going to be a bi-weekly commitment. These conversations are just so fascinating. I can't wait to share the next one with you. I had a fabulous conversation with Dr. Steve. He is the gay leadership dude, his concept of how gayness or queerness really gives you leadership powers that the average person may not possess is fascinating. And he's written an entire book about it. So make sure you tune in for that. The best way to keep up with what episodes are coming next is to get on the mailing list. So if you visit DaliaKinsey.com, slash body lib playlist, you not only get added to the mailing list, but you also get instant access to a special body positive playlist that I have curated for you. So be sure to check that out so we can stay connected and so you never miss a bonus. Also consider checking out the body liberation community. The link is in the show notes. It's barely an investment. It's literally just the cost of two cups of coffee a month to be in community with like-minded people and to also have the ability to vote on future episodes and to also be part of the live studio audience every now and then. I thought that would be a really fun thing to add so that we can have live chat and Q&A with some guests in the future. So if you would be into that, just hop on over to the website and get yourself signed up. And be sure to share the show with your friends. If you got anything at all out of this episode, please share it with others. You can take a screenshot of yourself listening to the episode and share it on social, or just grab one of the easily shared links that are in the show notes to post this episode on social media. Tag me and let me know what you thought about it. It's at Body Liberation RD on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. All right, everybody, I'll see you soon. Yeah, they might try to put you in a box Tell them that you don't accept When the world is tripping out Tell them that you love yourself Hey, hey, 
Smile on them, live your life just how you like it. It's your party, negativity is not invited. For my queer folk, my trans, people of color, let your voice be heard. Look in the mirror and say that it's time to put me first. You were born to win, head up high with confidence. This show is for everyone, so I thank you for tuning in. Let's go.